Welcome to the Commercial Matters Podcast. Your show host is Amit Kapoor, owner of Mindful Contract Solutions. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice. Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of the Commercial Matters Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the top four mistaken beliefs or misconceptions that program leaders have about contract law and how that operates in the context of their programs. Now, I know I've singled out program leaders as a community, but I don't want to be derisory towards that community. I think it's fair to say that there will also be a number of contract professionals and contract directors who might share these same misconceptions. And the reason is contract law, as we discussed in the last podcast episode, is a moving beast. So things keep happening in case law and what was sometimes a legitimate result may no longer be the case. Before I begin, I do have a request. If you are a program leader and if any of these four misconceptions resonate with you and if I've helped um, correct that misconception, then I'd really appreciate you drop me a line at amit at mindfulcontract.co.uk. That's my first name, Amit, spelled as Alpha Mike India Tango at mindfulcontract.co.uk. I'd really look forward to hear from you. Right then, let's get cracking. The first misconception that I've heard time and again in programs is that restrictive covenants are unenforceable. Quite often what I observe is many of the programs are stacked with contract professionals who work through a number of agencies and for various reasons a program or the contractor concerned may not want to work through that agency any further but the program needs the services of the contractor going further. I mean I've come across many a senior management professional who seem to have very strong views about this kind of restriction. They call it restraint of trade and they say it's automatically unenforceable. In my opinion, that's a very old school view and certainly it's very brash to be making a judgment on a clause without really considering it in its form and in the context of the document in which it exists. It certainly needs a level of analysis, legal analysis, before you can ascertain if it's indeed unenforceable. I would say in my experience, 40 to 50% of clauses will be unenforceable, but there is equal number of contract clauses that will be deemed enforceable. A lot of this changed by, incidentally, a parking ticket appeal that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was parking I versus Mr. Beavis. I think this happened in 2015. Although it was strictly not a restriction of trade, or restraint of trade clause, it still involved elements of being a penalty. The Supreme Court in that case deemed that the clause was indeed enforceable because it was there to protect the legitimate interests of the parking company. The long and the short of this case is that it is no longer advisable to be deeming any such clause as unenforceable based on a preconceived notion that a court would not give effect to the words. If there's anything that's certainly been happening in terms of kind of an overall movement and an overall direction of the courts in the last few years, it's normally been of trying to give effect to the words that the parties agreed between them when they signed the contract. So that was misconception number one, which is that restrictive covenants are not enforceable. Misconception number two is that 
a contract can be varied by the conduct of the parties. So effectively, if you contracted a supplier to do a certain scope of services, and if that supplier then undertakes a new piece of work, then that effectively constitutes a change to the contract. So effectively, if the work was not done to an appropriate quality, then you as the buyer of that service have some comeback in law where you can sue the supplier for the deficiencies and so on. Now, there's a very good reason for this misconception because I certainly remember that when I was first briefed on contract law when working as a contracts manager for an organization back in 2011 to 2013 period, I was certainly told that this was the case by a proper lawyer. So they basically said that a contract can be varied by its conduct. That might well have been the position then, but it's certainly not the position now. Typically, the the large IT outsourcing contracts that I work with will always have something like a change control procedure associated with it. Normally, it's a schedule to the contract. So there's a level of formality that is prescribed within that schedule that sets out the respective obligations of the party when a change has to be effected to the contract. Usually, that schedule will also require both the parties to agree any changes in writing and to be signed by both parties. In legal parlance, such a schedule and such a form of words are called as a no oral modification clause or a norms clause. Effectively, such a clause prohibits the contracting parties to give effect to any variation to the contract other than in writing and signed by the parties. In other words, what that means is the parties cannot rely on informal conversations to assert that the contract has been varied. The intent behind the court deciding in this manner was to give the effect of certainty to commercial contracts between parties. The most authoritative case on this matter is a case called MWB Business Exchange versus Rock Advertising, a case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 2019. So again, this is a very recent development and it might well have been the case that previously this would have been sound advice that a contract is automatically varied just because a party has acted differently. That certainly is not the case at this moment. So that was misconception number two. It is that contracts can be varied by conduct. Misconception number three, and this is so, so common, and it is that when a supplier says that they're working at their risk, then effectively you can use them guilt-free and without commercial consequences. I find it very common that many large suppliers, tech giants, seem to have you know big pockets in pre-sales departments who really want to make some kind of foray into client organizations. So they're very happy to provide a level of consultancy support free of charge. The intention being really to embed their resources within the client's organization to create some level of dependence and a forward movement and then seek paid work in the future. Alternatively, it could be really about the supplier trying to capitalize on the buyer's need for urgency by saying, don't worry about your commercial approvals and your internal approvals. We will deploy some people at our risk 
and at a later point in time please just formalize a contract making it giving it a backdated effect really so that we are recompensed for the work that we did it all sounds very collaborative until something goes wrong in this process one of the things that can go wrong is your commercial department so another department of the organization effectively disagreeing that this work should be awarded to this particular supplier or the commercial department advising you to run a procurement for similar services or advising you of an alternate supplier that is already engaged with in another part of the business who can effectively be used for the provision of those services in all of those cases what is then required is for you to offboard this supplier who has been working at risk now as a program that can put you in a very very tough position because you might have actually acted outside your authority in permitting the supplier to be working for you on the presumption that there are no commercial consequences but in common law there are commercial consequences for use of services of a third party with some kind of expectation that they would be paid for the services this usually happens on two bases one is that such a situation usually satisfies all the conditions for a contract so for any kind of valid contract there are four or in some theories five elements one of this is that there should be an offer the offer in this case has come from the supplier to deploy these people on your program with an expectation to be paid later there should be an acceptance which has essentially happened through you in your kind of capacity as a program leader then there's got to be an intention to create legal relations which would definitely be the case if you have accepted the offer which was about contracting in the future and then getting recompensed the supplier getting recompensed for the work in the past and then there's a question of capacity in that you should be a senior enough professional in your organization able to authorize contracts i mean the fact that you didn't have commercial backing in agreeing to that is a disputable point but there are no guarantees that it could help you in this case and finally there should be some kind of consideration which is usually a fee expectation or a fee agreement between the parties so a court would very readily in such circumstances assume that there was an implied contract between the parties that is if the supplier wanted to pursue you for its losses the real problem for you as a program leader is that even if a court does not find that there was a properly executed contract or a fully implied contract they still can award the supplier damages under the concept of quantum merit it's latin phrase and it basically means that a reasonable sum of money should be paid for services rendered or work done when the amount due is not stipulated in a legally enforceable contract so exactly the kind of thing that catches you out where you consume services from a supplier and do not have a valid contract to be paying them under so there are no free lunches as far as using services from third party suppliers at their risk or with some expectation for them to be paid later so that was misconception number 3 and it was that work at supplier's risk has no commercial consequences for you the final misconception i want to cover today is usually and this is quite i think common across program leaders 
in that when things go wrong with a supplier or you have a dispute with a supplier, you enter into some level of correspondence with the supplier. So a lot of allegations made, a lot of defenses produced, a lot of counterpoints made by suppliers. And usually program leaders can have the perception that if the final word was theirs, where they've really given a kitchen sink of all the allegations they have, against the supplier and all the reasons why the supplier is wrong and when they don't hear back from the supplier they assume that the matter is sorted the reason i say this is a very typical perception amongst program leaders is programs tend to work this way in in the sense that when there are risks and issues and there are mitigations for those risks program leaders then seem to stop applying their mind towards that risk any further because that has been sorted that has been agreed or the issue has been dealt with and then move on to other issues and other risks and other things to focus on in the program. So applying that kind of demeanor to a correspondence in respect of dispute would mean that when things go quiet on a dispute, then things are sorted. It is never the case that that is true. The one big reason for that is firstly, breach of contract claims or many of the claims that are possible in the context of an IT outsourcing agreement can be brought in within six years of the incident first happening. So effectively, it could be well after the conclusion of your program when you might have moved out to another role that a claim comes in. What this also means is for any claimant, they have the luxury of choosing the best time to bring a claim against you. It may not be now, it may be at a time of their convenience. So the last thing you should be doing is letting your guard down. You certainly do need to make sure that you have recorded and created some kind of a bundle of evidence that is relevant to this matter that persists even beyond the length of the program. It would also be good to interview all relevant professionals in on your side of the fence to get their version of events. So these are the people who might become witnesses in respect of this dispute in the future. Uh, they might all be doing different jobs at a subsequent time, but you will still, as an organization, have an incentive to bring them to give evidence because they might be supportive of your case. So it's best that you record that evidence and then make contact with them at an appropriate time when a claim arrives. But what you can't do is you can't force a claim to come on the table now. The claimant really has a choice in that respect and it would be foolhardy to believe that just because you've won a war of words with a supplier, you have effectively thwarted a claim. So that was misconception number four, which was that when you have your final word, that is the end of the dispute. Right, that's all I had to cover for this week. I hope you found this informative and as I requested earlier, if any of these misconceptions resonated with you and if I have helped dispel that, I'd be really appreciative if you can drop me a line to let me know. Finally, the best way to know when we next go live with another episode of the Commercial Matters podcast is to subscribe to our channel on the device you're listening to this podcast on, which could be Spotify or could be Apple iTunes. I will speak to you very soon. Until then, goodbye. That's this week's episode of the Commercial Matters podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode.
Thank you for listening. 